0: So what do you do for a living? You know, it's an interesting question, right? You get asked that and we have a range of emotions and feelings that we have. when um, we're asked that question and maybe over the course of your life, you've had different seasons where somebody asks you what you do for a living. You're really proud and excited about answering. Other seasons of life, you're a little timid or maybe you're insecure about the answer or maybe you're embarrassed about the answer. We've got this wide range of, of, of feelings about it when we get asked about what we do. And of course, the Christian worldview uh, is that there's dignity in all work, and the Bible is continually affirming the fact that because uh, we did not crawl out of primordial soup for no reason, but we were given uh, purpose and meaning by a creator, that divine dignity means that uh, we have intrinsic value as human beings. It's totally apart from our work. Now, intellectually, we know that, and as Christians, we know that uh, that uh, we're not defined by our work. Um, And that we're image bearers of God, uh, you know, and and regardless of the kind of work that we do, that there's dignity in that. But still, we struggle with latching our identity onto our social status, latching our identity onto the lifestyle that we have because of the resources that we have. This is a struggle uh, for all of us. And I don't know if you've ever felt the need to, uh, if you've been in an insecure season of life, add a lot of gravitas in describing your work. You know, it'd be like... Because of the way that this particular city and region is, um, you know, uh, if you if if you were applying for a job, uh, the job listing might not say window washer because well, that's just not very exciting. Um, so we would prefer to be uh, referred to as the director of transparency enhancement. Um, you know, the way <laughs> of having a gravitas to what we do. Um, you know, I remember uh, when Rebecca was a teenager. Uh, our daughter started writing her first resumes. She used to call them brag because she's like, I feel weird about this. It's like I have to brag about myself and use all of these, you know, <laughs> really exciting ways to describe normal things so that I can sell myself. And it was like an odd moment for her to realize this. And you know, we've all experienced it. I remember writing resumes and, you know, you go through the process and it's kind of like this. It's like, uh, well, Mr. Dunk, uh, I see that in high school here you worked at Foodland as a uh, product distribution and location specialist. Can you tell me about that, please? Uh, yeah, I stocked shelves. Okay. Um, and, and we see that after that, you worked for a construction company called Bigelow Builders. Uh, as it says here, the director of tool placement and lumber relocation. Can you can you tell me a little bit about uh, your responsibilities in that role? Yeah, I unloaded the truck and, and moved two by fours around. That's what I did. <laughs> it, this is this way of having a rise of emotions, good or bad, when we're talking about what we do. Maybe you're very successful by the standards of the city. Maybe you're very wealthy by the standards of uh, our culture, of the city. And if you take an honest inventory of your emotions when you're talking about what you do, maybe there's a dark corner in your heart where you rank people. There are people who you see beneath you because of what they do, beneath you because of their education uh, or their lack thereof beneath you because of uh, your particular socioeconomic status and your lifestyle in, in, uh, comp- compared to, to theirs. These sorts of struggles are very human. In the book of James, chapter 1, which is our text for this morning, verses 9 through 15, um, we encounter this because James is dealing with uh, a church that has a problem with class division. And we're gonna dive deeply into this in a couple of weeks when he really gets into it, but we're gonna to touch on it today because the text takes us there. And really, the, the letter to James, it begins with this declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then the entire epistle is dedicated to thinking through the implications of what it means that he's Lord. He, the book of James is wisdom literature in the New Testament. We've been talking about this the last few weeks. And so he doesn't spend a lot of time unpacking who Jesus is. He actually spends the entirety of his epistle getting us as Christians to think about the life we live uh, in, re- in regards, uh, in, in relation to, in response to who Jesus is uh, for us. And so the significance of the text we're about to look at is it deals with this aspect of lifestyle and, and affluence and uh, the identity that we can sort of attach to that. Because really the question is, are we as Christians gathering together on Sunday mornings um, to worship God, but then during the rest of the week, kind of functionally living in a way where we're trusting something else as God, which is a volatile way to live. It's like giving lip service to Jesus and giving lip service to grace, but then when the rubber really hits the road, we look out at the culture, we say, I'll have what they're having. And so we come now to James chapter one, starting in verse nine. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with the scorching heat, and it withers the plant, and its blossom fails, and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. This is God's word. Now, as we're thinking through the implications of this text, um, where James is saying, whether you have a, a humble circumstance, difficulty making ends meet, or you are in a place of incredible abundance, the location of your identity and the implications of that are so key. He's not talking to the world. He's speaking to the church. They've got a huge problem with this. It's created class divisions in the congregation and... Being a book that is really dedicated about works, we want to think about the implications of these works. In 1521, during the Reformation, Martin Luther wrote a a, a treatise on love and good works. In it, he said, we cannot grant the premise of grace and then deny the conclusion of grace. In other words, if we're going to boldly declare that we're the children of God, there's got to be implications to that claim. The faith that saves, we're saved by faith alone, but that faith doesn't stay alone. It's going to work itself out. So right here, we're asked to consider how it works out as it relates to how we think about our identity and our work and our social standing. Now, right before this, you'll remember from last week, he makes that comment about Christians ought not to be double-minded, double-souled, have two allegiances. If we have allegiance to God and this tiny thing we call God— then we're going to live a volatile life. We're going to be like a wave tossed uh, you know, to and fro in the sea. These verses start to look at what that tossing looks like. So let's look at it. In verse 9, uh, or sorry, before I get to there, I'll just say quickly, we're going to divide this text up in, in two ways. Um, the first is to look at the pro- the problem of reliance on self, and then secondly, the reward for reliance on God. So first, the problem of reliance on self. In verse 9, he says, if if there's a Christian who's in humble circumstances, then what, what they should really pride themselves in is actually their high position. What does that mean? If there's a Christian who has very favorable affluent circumstances, then their pride should be in their low position. So what is this high position and this low position? Interestingly, James, is, he's directing them to fi- take pride in the same thing. I'm going to give you a little bit of Greek this morning, a little more than normal. And I'm not doing it for those of you who are new to the scriptures or joining a live stream this morning. I'm not doing it because you need to understand the original languages to understand the Bible. That is not true. The English translations are totally sufficient. You'll get the core of the gospel. You get the core of the Bible reading in English. So I'm not giving you the original language to, you know, make you doubt that you can understand the text without the original. The reason I'm doing this is many of you on this call are not new to the scriptures. You've read this text a hundred times. And it's easy to pass over things that we've read in English all the time. So sometimes when you go to the original language, it gives you a little bit more color because you can say things in a way that are faithful to the Greek, but you're like, oh, I think about it that way. So here we go. This word for pride or boast or glory, um, it, it's, the, it's a Greek word, which, which is, comes from the root word for your neck. It's an interesting word that James uses. He's like, what is it that straightens your neck out? When you wake up in the morning what makes you push your shoulders back and make your neck go straight what gives you that degree of confidence what what is it that causes you to walk down the street or walk down the halls of school or walk down the office building uh, back seventeen years ago when we used to do that before we were uh, you know dealing with covid what what makes you have that kind of confidence in life and so he says to the the Christian who can't make their end meet your pride is in the wrong thing your are your whole sense of identity is in the wrong thing. It's not in this low position. And for the rich, it's not in your high position. For the for the poor, it's that you are a child of God and your identity is not hinged and tethered to this circumstance. And if you are wealthy, it's in the grace of God, meaning you only have what you have because of the grace of God. You've only accomplished what you've accomplished because of the grace of God. And in fact, if you understand the, the biblical teachings on wealth, which James does, which would be you know homework for you to read the entire book of Deuteronomy to get the essence of what God expense, expects Christians to do with their wealth. It's this. It's not your wealth. It belongs to God. He's expecting you to use it for the purposes of God. So it's very, very humbling because the wealthy Christian should look at everything they have and say, Oh my goodness, this is a wonder of God's grace that I have this. Because I, I, I could not have any of this, but by his grace I do, what ought I to do with this? So you see, that's what James means by regardless of your social standing, the lifestyle that you lead, the house you live in, um, or, or what it, your role is in the city, you have to put your identity in something that is not volatile. And, and so um, we're given this provocative image, uh, which is this fading flower. Look at how he describes it, it's in verse 11. The blossom falls, beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the, the rich, again, not the culture, he's talking to Christians, the rich Christian will fade away even as they go about their business. So what is this slow fading? In, in the Greek, the fading is, it's dehydrating, it's depleting. In other words, this thing is not feeding you at all. There's no nourishment coming to your soul from this thing, from these riches. And so he gives this provocative image, but what's interesting about it, because the temptation would be to say, yeah, stick it to the rich. But the interesting thing about the people who aren't rich is that most of them want to be rich. So not only is there this, uh, this image of trusting in something that's fading if you're rich, but also it's challenging those who aren't rich to say, is actually really the goal of your life? The thing that wakes you up in the morning and drives you is the thing you're actually chasing fading. Whether you're rich or you desire to be rich, you can't be chasing in something that's ultimately going to dehydrate you. And so uh, he gives this provocative image and he gets us to consider how whether you're poor or whether you're wealthy, you can really dethrone Jesus in two completely different ways, which is, of course, to put your identity in something that's failing. And so what is James... Doing by talking this way? He's got a class division in the church. You got poor people, you got wealthy people, and in a couple of weeks I'm gonna really break out what that actually ends up doing in the culture of the church, how they relate to each other. But for our purpose this morning, we've got to ask ourselves the question: what is he doing? Is James being a a a New Testament Eeyore? Is he just like, you know, being a total downer on talking about what's what's fading? Because everybody's fading. It's not just the rich that are fading. The poor are fading. Humanity is fading, right? Do you know what the stats are on death? They're staggering. One in one person dies. It's incredible. None of us are getting out of this alive. So what is James doing? He's not just a New Testament Eeyore. Well, if you trust in your riches, they're all going to fade and topple over like my house knocked over by piglet. Let's all... What he's doing is he is getting us to see that neither your success nor your failure defines you. You're defined by a cross. You're not defined by anything else. And that is important because some of you who have been around the church for a while know that in Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about the secret to contentment. Here it is again. That's what this is. It's James revisiting this, the, the wisdom of the scriptures and what is this secret to, it, to contentment. You remember in Philippians 4, Paul says, I know, I know how to have a lot and I know how to have nothing. I know what it's like to be in total lack and I know what it's like to be in total abundance and I'm actually free from both. And James is getting at the exact same thing here and it is this. There is a connection between our uh, resilience and our reliance. There is a total connection between how resilient you and I will be in trouble based on what we are relying upon. And so until we find our confidence in what is not fading, until we find our true sense of waking up in the morning and having a sense of humble confidence about who we are on the basis of our identity being in in Christ, we are not going to be resilient in trouble. And that's where the text starts moving, because he's going to talk about enduring trials in a minute. That's, that's this recurring theme at the beginning of James. How are you going to get through the trial? How are you not going to be tossed on the wave of the storm? Where are you locating your identity? Are you double-minded? Are you double-souled? Do you have two allegiances? Are you busy on Sunday morning, but ultimately trusting in what everybody else is trusting in? If, if you are, you're going to be dehydrated. You're going to be depleted. You're going to fade like a flower. And so this is what this uh, text is sort of provoking us to consider. If you look at verse 12, it goes on to say, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, right? What does this mean? It means that we're all going to be in trials, of course, and that you can't get through life if you can't get through trials. The text goes on to say, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, they will receive the crown that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So what is this test? Again, if you go back and you read the entire chapter, you're going to see that oh, all this is a test of allegiance. This is a test of my loves. To borrow from Augustine, he said, wherever I go, my love is carrying me. He talked about the affections of his heart in such a way as he, Augustine recognized in his own life when he wrote in Confessions He said, my problem is I love women and food too much. That's how he talked about it in his confessions. Because what he was saying was, I'm loving good things in the wrong way. I'm loving the right things in the wrong way. Wherever I go, my love is carrying me. It's like an existential compass that's sort of leading me through life. As you continually read through wisdom literature, we spent the summer through the Proverbs. And here in James, this is New Testament wisdom literature. You continually get this theme of being led around through life by our appetites. And in this particular context, the appetite is the affluence or the lack thereof and how that has an impact on us psychologically and emotionally if we're uh, trusting in um, the wrong things, putting our identity in our social status, social standing. So when you, when, you, when you get to verse 13, the text goes on to say, when you're tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Right? What does that mean? What's he getting at here? Again, in the Greek... The word the word for uh, tempting in the Greek is uh, perazdo. and perazdo can be used in a positive and a negative way the word perazdo, it can it can mean testing in a positive way or tempting in a negative way you you can perazdo your children you can test them to build resilience in them maturity in them strengthen them or you can tempt somebody with the with the goal of destroying them so what James is saying is God God will tempt his children, of course. He, or, I'm sorry, God will test his children. Of course, he will desire to mature us, allow testing into our life. The Bible is, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, testifies of that. But God will not tempt his children. God will not, from a motivation of destruction, allow things in our lives for the purpose of destroying any of us, and so the significance of this, of course, is because God is this heavenly Father. He's not a genie that grants wishes. He's a Father that guides and loves his children. And good parents, which is most of you on uh, in our congregation, our parents with with and many of you with little children, as a good parent, you are going to put your children in situations that will test and mature and grow and strengthen them. You are going to allow your children to be in situations where they will be tested and matured. You are not going to, if you're a good parent, a wise parent, you are not going to rescue your children from every opportunity for testing and maturity and resilience and growth, right? You're not going to do that. Um, You are going to even allow, as a good, wise parent, you're even going to allow your child to fail, but because you love them, you will not (laughs) tempt them in such a way that they fail so that their failure is final, so that their failure is is eternally damaging. You will not do that as a loving parent. And if we, as earthly parents, even have the sense to care for our children that way, how much more does your Heavenly Father have the good, uh, wise sense to care for us in a perfect way? So many of you have young children, and one day you're gonna drop those kids off in the front of their elementary school. And then one day you're gonna drop those kids off and you're gonna watch them walk away from you at their high school. And then one day you're gonna drop those kids off maybe uh, at post-secondary. Or perhaps you're going to watch them get on a bus or get in your car and drive away and go to a job. Or one day, uh, like this last couple of weeks for us as a family, you're going to drop your kid, one of your kids off in another city. And you're going to go through that experience of, of saying, you know, you're going to be tested and you're going to drive away from that city. And um, the popular constructs of God are like, oh, no, no, God, God wouldn't allow any uh, testing in my life. Oh, I'm going through a challenge. Oh, God, take this away. Most of, the, most of our pop theology leads to prayer that doesn't go beyond, Dear Lord, please send health. Love, Paul. Dear Lord, please send wealth. Love, Paul. Dear Lord, please take this thing away from me. Love, Paul. Our prayers rarely get away. Just take this thing away. That would infantilize your child if you were to just remove the testing, and it would infantilize uh, God's children if you did the same. So James says, God will not tempt you. He's not tempting you. See, he, the problem is, the text says, God cannot be tempted by anyone. Verse 14, it says, each one is tempted as they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And this word desire in the Greek, it is epithemia. Thymia is desire. Epi is like the epic nature of it. So what James says here, he goes, there's a problem and the problem is not outside us. The problem is inside us. For us as Christians, but all of humanity. The the problem is we are all being led away by this all-consuming over-desire that leads us to the decisions uh, that we make. We're all like cars that are out of alignment that you have to constantly fight to go in a straight line. And if you just kind of relax your hands at the wheel, that thing is going in the ditch, our hearts are that way, James says. He says the problem is not with God who's asleep at the switch. The problem with this is with a humanity whose hearts have an epithemia that's out of alignment causing us to um, spiral into uh, our various uh, you know, directions and sins. And see, here here is the challenge for us, church, is that all of us have this in various ways and in different ways and you're tempted in ways that are different than I am and 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 sadly, uh, what happened in this church was people were becoming very judgy about others sin and it 's like really i 'd prefer that you sinned the same way that I did and if If you sinned like I did, then I could have a lot of patience and empathy and love toward you. But because you sin in a way that's very different than I sin, you have a very sinny sin i 'm not very comfortable with your kind of sin and, and th- that is the nature of this epithemia. Um, that causes us to sort of go out of alignment. God is not tempting us. We are going where we are going because of these wayward desires in all of our hearts, ourselves. And so this is the problem of the reliance on self is that it is a fragile and volatile way to go through life. Here is the good news now. The good news is that there is a reward for reliance on God. What we deserve is for God to just leave us alone. That's what we deserve. We, we deserve for God to just leave us alone and if you read Romans chapter one, it talks about what the judgment of God looks like and the judgment of God looks like just leaving us alone to our desires. Leave us, leaving us alone in our epithemia, leaving us alone in our being out of alignment and wherever that takes us, it takes us. That's what we deserve. But we're not left alone in our sin. God came in Jesus Christ in 33 AD and he went to the cross for our sin. What we deserve is for God to just leave us on our deeply flawed trajectory uh, towards death. But on the third day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that for you and I who trust him, there is no finality in death, that God of course has interrupted that trajectory. See, James mentions the reward for not having uh, you know, uh, reliance on self, but reliance on God, he mentions it. And we're gonna get to it right here as we close. See the hope of the gospel, this eternal life. It gives us humble confidence. It anchors our hope, right in this life. It matters on Monday. All of this matters on Monday, because heaven is not this consolation prize, some ethereal place that Christians go. The boldly, uh, or sorry, the, the bodily resurrected Jesus. It means that this thing that we call heaven is round trip. It means that heaven is the renewal of God's creation, the renewal of this earth, the renewal of our bodies. The message of the Bible, the hope of the gospel, the reason why James is saying whether you're poor or rich, you got letters after your name and a degree, or you got no degree, you gotta think carefully about where you locate your identity so they can have resilience and trouble and not be volatile and fade like a flower, the message of the Bible is not evacuation. It's restoration. He's not zap frying us out of here. This is the reward. The reward of the gospel is the, it is the promise for the deepest longings of the human soul. Think about what our culture wants. Think about what consumes your newsfeed, what everybody's crying for. Unity and justice and forgiveness and grace and generosity, all of these good things that that humanity cries out for are are promised in the restoration of the gospel. The world that we wish we lived in, but we can't seem to create for ourselves. The bodies that we wish that we had that were resilient against things like COVID-19, that we are weak and fragile. It's the, the promise of the gospel for those who don't rely on self but rely on God, is the hope of everything that we actually want as humans. And so the promise of of this all, as children of God, is that we don't just sit back as idle observers and say, well, you know what? One day Jesus is going to return and he's going to restore all things. We're not idle observers, but we are active ministers in our city as we desire to actively share the good news of the gospel and the hope that we have Because here is the reward. It's in, uh, you you find it here in in these verses where uh, James writes that it is a crown. What does that mean? The author of this epistle, he wrote the words, we will get a crown of life. What's the reward for those of you who endure the testing? What's the reward, Christian, for not trusting in your bank account? He calls it a crown of life. What does that mean? The one who wrote the words, we will get a crown of life, he watched from a distance as his brother had a crown of thorns pushed into his forehead. The author who said, we will get a crown of life, he also stood face to face with his older brother, Jesus, and he saw that God had raised him to life. So he boldly writes to Christians in his church and in our church, whether they're poor or whether they're rich, and he calls us to put our trust in something that doesn't fade because right here and right now in this pandemic riddled world in this world that is full of alarm full of constant invitations to worry a world where we have to check our newsfeed every week to find out how many of us can get together in a backyard. This is the world we're living in right now in this volatile fragile world the word of God causes us calls us to place our hope in something that is not volatile but stable in Christ alone the Lord of life mm-hmm. the one who was given a crown of thorns so that you would be given a crown of life Amen. let's pray